Good morning again, and I want to say a quick welcome back to uh, Edwin and Meg Nam, Maggie, Karis, Jack, Nam, Ohana, welcome back, yes. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, they were here on island, they lived here, we sent them out with our church plant, and uh, if you are a part of small groups, if you've been blessed by small groups, small groups was uh, literally birthed at KBC in their home, as the Noms would open their home for women's fellowship at the time, and uh, let us just totally trash their downstairs of their house, and it was just uh, wild madness, but it was a really sweet time, so thank you for uh, your role in that, and welcome home. We hope you guys enjoy your time in Maui. All right, the title of the sermon is Christ is Born for You. As we just sang, Christ is Born for You. This is our post-Thanksgiving Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, where we all collectively feel in our bodies, what did I do this year at Thanksgiving? Uh, why do I eat what I eat? Every year we think, oh, I'm not doing that next year, and then we do it next year. But it is a joyful time as we come and just get ready for the Christmas season, and this is going to be a sweet time. It has been thus far through Matthew. Uh, we've just finished going through Matthew 5-7, through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and so uh, I hope it has been a blessing for your soul. It was challenging for my soul and nourishing at the same time. And so I hope that's been the same for you. Uh, closing out the Sermon on the Mount, we heard Jesus, and, and I, I hope you're like this too. I, I want to hear his words and do them. I want to be like that wise man who built his house upon the rock, and when the winds come and the rain falls and the waters rise, I, I want that house to stand in the judgment, and I hope you do too. And, and, and so we want to hear the words of Jesus and do them, but I also want to see the heart of Christ and imitate it. I want to hear his heart for sinners and mimic it and echo it and let that Christ-likeness be formed in my heart and in your heart. And that's what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 8. We see the very heart of Christ. Um, you know, they say, there's a saying, you should never meet your heroes. You should never meet your heroes. Let me ask you this. Has anybody in here ever met somebody famous? You ever met somebody famous? A few hands. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you, what were they like? Were they as you expected them to be? Were they normal? Were they rude? Were they exceptionally kind? What were they like? They say you should never meet your heroes because more often than not, especially if you spend any time with them, the picture you have of them is often not based in reality. You will tend to be disappointed as you see everybody, all people, men and women, famous, not famous, rich and powerful, all people have feet of clay if you spend enough time with them. So they say you should never meet your heroes but it makes me wonder, what about Jesus? What about, what about Jesus? See, at the end of Matthew 7, we're told that there are great crowds. In the beginning of Matthew 8, uh, there are great crowds around Jesus. They just heard this sermon that is blowing their minds. They're astonished, amazed, 
Why? Because Jesus is teaching them as somebody who has authority. You remember the closing words of his sermon? Whoever hears these words of mine and does them. Nobody speaks like that in Israel. And so they're astonished at his authority. And now they're coming down from the mountain, and in a very real sense, we are coming down with them as we're in Matthew. We are coming down together, and we're about to see what it's like to meet Jesus close up, to have a one-on-one extended encounter with Jesus, not when he's in sermon mode, not when he's in his public persona, but Jesus, as he's approached by people in need, how, how will he respond? What will their response be? Will they be disappointed? Will we be disappointed as we meet our hero? So having heard the word proclaimed with authority, now we're going to see the word portrayed with breathtaking, heart-bursting, soul-stirring authority, and I hope this morning it leaves us collectively overflowing with joy, awe, majesty, as we see our Savior in action. And so let's pray, and we're going to get into this passage. Father in heaven, I pray first of all that Jesus would be our hero, the chief of our soul, the one whom we embrace with a whole heart. And if he's not, if there are some here this morning who have never embraced him as such, I pray they would see and watch very closely this morning. I pray they would pay especially careful attention to these three portraits of Jesus in Matthew, and that they would see, they will, if they would come to Jesus, they will never leave disappointed, nor will we. We will never leave cast out or rejected. And so, Father, would you feed us, feed our souls on your word, bring us to yourself, and would you help us this morning to imitate the very heart of Christ as we see it in Matthew 8. We ask that you would do this here. We also lift up our church plant, uh, Waehu Community Church. I pray for Pastor Rocky, for Pastor Jay, for their families and the transitions they are going through. Lord, we know that you are guiding them, and would you strengthen their hand for this moment to persevere? Would you give them joy in their labors as they set up every Sunday, as they break down every Sunday, as they arrive early and stay late? Would you bless those interactions as they are working together for the sake of the gospel? Would you draw many in to hear and to believe? And would you do this great work at WCC? and do it all around the islands where this gospel is preached. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, here's your big idea if you're taking notes. Jesus' healing power affirms his authority. His healing power affirms his authority. And the healed persons confirm his compassion. His healing power affirms his authority. And the healed persons affirm his compassion. That's our big idea that we're going to see fleshed out in these three healing portraits in Matthew 8, 1 through 17. So we have uh, three points. Number one, unclean. Number two, unworthy. Number three, unvalued. Unclean, 
unworthy, unvalued. If you have to put one word to each of those little blocks, that's what you're going to see. Unclean, unworthy, unvalued. Number one, unclean, verses one through four. Jesus is now descending from the mountain, so we are in a, so we took a little a break, so Matthew's narrative, we have the genealogy of Jesus, the virgin birth, the visit of the magi, the wise men, all these different movements happening, the, the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, and then we get to Matthew's five through seven, and he kind of takes this little aside, and we get the Sermon on the Mount, and so the narrative the story itself kind of stops, and we get the sermon. And now we're descending the mountain, and Matthew's going to pick his narrative back up, and we're going to start to see some things. And so we're jumping back into the flow of Matthew's narrative, and we see he tells us that great crowds follow Jesus, mega crowds. That's the Greek word, great, mega, lots of people. And that means there are also, with lots of people, there are many eyes. There are many eyeballs about to witness what's going to happen here in a minute. That raises the narrative tension here. This isn't necessarily a one-on-one encounter, although it is that. It's also a one-on-one encounter as there's gobs and gobs and gobs of people around. Okay, uh, maybe you've ever been in this situation where uh, when there's a lot of people around somebody that you want to talk to, maybe you do this with me or maybe you do this with somebody else, uh, that there's a lot of people around, but you want to talk to one person, you're less inclined to do that if there's a whole lot of people around. But if you're maybe just catch them off guard or, or, or off to the side one-on-one and there's really nobody around, you might actually approach them, hey, hey, I wanted to talk to you about something, or, or if this is a famous person, hey, are, are you that so-and-so, right? Are you the Pastor Bill come in the flesh? Yeah, that's right. It, it, whenever there's less people around, we're more often to approach, but Matthew heightens the tension and says there's, there's just gobs of people all around Jesus as he's coming down, and he says Jesus is in approached by a leper. He gives us this emphatic, behold, a leper came and knelt before him. He says that, that word, pay attention. Just look at what's happening here. A leper comes to Jesus and, and kneels before him. And in contrast, we're about to see something that Jesus does that's going to that's gonna blow our minds. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is, is bringing up Moses repeatedly. He brings up Moses, the, the law and the prophets, and he's sitting in Moses' seat. And you remember Moses' origin story in Exodus as he's there on the mountain and there's a, a burning bush and God tells him to go to Pharaoh to demand him to let his people go. And there's this interchange and, and Moses says, how, how, how are they going to know that you sent me? Why would they listen to me? And, and remember, God says, you see that stick in your hand? Throw it on the ground. And, and he does, and what's it turn into? A snake. And, and Moses just steps away like we would all do. And then he says, okay, now pick it up again. That's faith, amen? Faith already, right? Pick it up. Wait, what? And, and he grabs it, and it turns into a staff. And then he gives him another sign. Do you remember? He says, stick your hand in your cloak. And he sticks his hand in, and he brings it out. And what's on his hand? It's leprous, like white like snow, and, 
And that terrifies them. Oh, like there's, that's incurable. There's, there's no cure for that. That's a, a death sentence in the ancient world. And it, up until even modern times, if you don't have treatment. And, and, and so God says, now stick it back in. And he sticks it back in and it comes out. Clean, gone, healed. Jesus, or Matthew, And this encounter with this leper is again showing us that something greater than Moses is here. Something superior to Moses. Jesus is not going to be thwarted. He's not going to be thrown off or scared of this leper. What do I do with this leper? No, Jesus is about to do something that's going to echo throughout history. And we know it is because we're still talking about it. Now, first, we need to know what leprosy is. Leprosy in the Bible is is a catch-all phrase. Uh, It can refer to any number of skin diseases or health conditions, Um, but it it can include a a wide range of things that include what we know today as as Hansen's disease. If from Molokai, we have Kalapapa, right? The, The leper colony that was formed in the 1800s there. Why did they form these separate colonies? Because they were relatively isolated and you could live there without fear of spreading this contagious disease that could literally rip through a whole community. The same is true, it was true in Molokai, it was true in the Old Testament. This was done by direct command of God. Uh, As we read through Leviticus 13, if you were able to kind of read through it a little bit slowly this recently, um, you, you saw in Leviticus 13 and 14, there are extensive commands and directives from God about what to do in the case of people who have leprosy how to uh, deal with them, how to diagnose them, how to, uh, what we would call, quarantine them. They were extensive directives meant to protect the commonwealth of the nation of Israel from contagious, debilitating diseases. In this process, what would happen is somebody would be deemed unclean. Unclean. Now, what does that mean for you? What does that mean? Leviticus 13, chapter 13, verse 46. Leviticus 13, 46 gives us an idea of what your life would be like if you were diagnosed with leprosy or any condition that fit the bill. Leviticus 13, 46, I'm going to read it for you. Listen carefully. The leprous person who has the disease... Oh, look, here it is. Who has the disease shall wear torn clothes. This is verse 45. I'm I'm giving you context. And let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so if you had to to sum it up, uh, they would walk around and and they were to be identifiable through their unkept appearance, right? That as you saw these people, you knew right out of the gate that something was off with them. In addition, they would confirm that by their shouting, unclean, 
unclean. Why is that? Because as they're walking and moving, they don't know, is this an airborne contagion? You're all wearing something. You are all doing this right now. You are covering your upper lip with your, not your hand, but with a mask, right? You're, you're doing this, and they would shout out, unclean. That would tell you, hey, we would call it social distance. Get away from them. Stand back from them, lest you catch this disease. And then verse 46, as long as they have this disease, here's what it says, they are to live alone outside the camp. They are unclean. Now think about what that means here. To be, to be unclean in this sense is to be kept outside of the worship uh, life, the religious life, which is the center of life in Israel. You don't get to do holidays. You don't get to do celebrations of, of children coming into the family or marriages or any of the things that would their version of Thanksgiving, Passover. You don't get to do any of those feasts. You are unclean. In addition, they were outside the camp. There's the camp. Here's, here's everybody who lives in, in, in the early days. It would be in the camp, and then it would become a city. They had sectors outside. They were to be outside, away from everybody, so that no, they didn't spread their disease. They would live together. Now, to think about this, to be outside the camp is also to be exposed to the harshest conditions that weather brings. It's to be exposed, the first, to dangers, either from outside invaders or from wild animals. And then you have uh, added to that place of outside the camp, which is uh, all kinds of physical hardships. You have the mental challenges of being alone, of being isolated. Now, just we, we can kind of actually today in 2021, you probably have a better appreciation of the challenges of this type of policy in your life than if we had preached on this sermon a couple years ago, right? You know the, the we all have experienced the, the inconvenience of quarantine, the, the struggles with social distancing and all this kind of, do I have to wear this? Do I have to do this? Why, why can't we go to the store? Does this, right? we, we've all experienced that. We've also experienced the pain of just being separate of being alone. You add to this that they're alone, they're outside the camp, and they're unclean. Nobody can touch them. How much do you take for granted, right? We used to come in here and we'd all hug and we still don't know what to do now. Do we do fists, elbows, air shockers? What do we do, right? But we, we took for granted that, that just that warmth of an, of an embrace. Good to see you, brother, sister. Good to see you. Even a, a handshake. But if you had this infectious disease, none of it. No affections. Physical affection shown. No touch. The only time they would ever experience anybody touching them is if, if they were healed or recovered from this skin disease. On the eighth day, 
after extensive ceremonial cleansing, washing, they'd shave their head, their eyebrows, their beard, everything. Then finally, if they were cleaned and healed and deemed so by a priest, the first time they would have somebody touch them is a priest atoning for their sins as he anointed their right earlobe, their right thumb, and their right big toe, symbolizing their cleanness. That was the first time anybody would touch them if, hear that if, if they were healed. But often, they were never healed. And so, we have all this in the backdrop. And Matthew says in chapter 8, verse 2, Behold, a leper came to Jesus and knelt before him and saying, Lord, there's a huge crowd He ignores it all. He comes to Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, if you are willing. He's not doubting his ability. He's only asking, if you will, if if it would please you, you can make me clean. Verse 3 is stunning. Matthew says Jesus stretched out his hand. You can hear the tension in how he actually describes it. He doesn't just say he touched him. He says Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Why is that significant? Remember, what happens if you touch a leper? You become what? Unclean. You become contagious. You become infected, you now go outside the camp for a period of time until it's deemed that you are safe. Matthew says, Jesus stretched out his hand, and you can imagine all the eyes in the crowd just, what's he doing? Don't, don't touch him, Jesus. Don't do that, Jesus. You're going to be unclean, Jesus. And Jesus reaches out his hand. And does what nobody else in that crowd would have done. He touches him. And he doesn't just touch him. He says he touches him and says, I will be clean. If you will, you can make me clean. I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony to them or a proof to them. I love that. Immediately, Jesus was, uh, the, the leprosy was cleansed. Incredible. Incredible. Jesus is the only person ever. In the law of Moses, there are zero provision. There's no method of cure, only a pronouncement of cure, only an affirmation of healing. There is no method of healing prescribed, but Jesus comes acting in astounding manner with authority over uncleanness and reaches out, and he does not become unclean. The person becomes clean whom he touched. Amazing. And so that's our first account of three, unclean. Jesus can make the unclean clean. Second account, unworthy, verses 5 through 13. 
We read further, when he had entered Capernaum, by the way, you should highlight that town. That's a very important town in the life of Jesus. A lot of things are going to happen in Capernaum. They're going to see a lot of miracles, and they're going to display an astounding hardness of heart as well even with all that they've seen. So if you've ever thought here and wondered, man, if I just saw, if I had proof, if I could see Jesus, then maybe I would believe these people far and wide saw, heard, and still refused to believe, and they are condemned for it. Beloved, your issue, our issue, is never one of lack of proof or evidence. It's hardness of heart. Will I believe? Will I submit? Will I trust? That's always at core here. But it says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. So first, we pause. This centurion comes. Now, now what is a centurion? First, this is a, a Roman legion. He works for, for the Roman government, more or less. Uh, he, he's, he's a Gentile. He's a Gentile. So the first one, we have they're unclean. They're outside the camp. This one is, is outside the covenant, we could say. Gentiles are outside the covenant. So remember, if you're a Jew, you're the chosen people of God, right? You are, there, there's two groups of people then in the world, those whom God chose and everybody else who didn't get chosen, right? Gentiles, they are outside the covenant. That means uh, they don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't have covenant relationship with God. Where we think of covenant of marriage, that special relationship with God. They don't have that. Israel does. They don't have the prophets. They don't have the promises. They don't have the, the promise of David and the kingship, the one to come and sit on the throne forever and ever. They don't get any of that. In contrast, Rome is now the occupying government. They are oppressing the oppressive power to Israel. Israel is praying that Messiah would come and conquer the Romans, overthrow the legions, take out the centurions, Pontius Pilate, Herods, Caesar, that he would take care of all of that. This guy is an enemy to Israel. They don't look at him favorably at all. In the Old Testament, he would be considered a stranger. And so we're told the centurion came forward to Jesus, appealing to him. Now, this is amazing. It's, it's literally begging, pretty much. He, he, he's begging Jesus. Now, this is amazing because centurions were chosen to be centurions precisely because they were men who were powerful. So the Roman legion was broken up into uh, a ten cohorts. They would have, these are larger groups of soldiers. And then underneath the cohort, really the, the hub of Roman military practice was your century and your centurion. And these guys were chosen. They would be the heads of about 80 to 100 men. This is going to come into play here in a second. That's why I'm giving it to you. Uh, they, were, they would be over 80 to 100 men. And they were chosen precisely because they exemplified strength, power, 
discipline and had size. They were somebody that, that these were not small dudes. If you saw these guys and you were going to scrap with somebody, you would not pick a fight with a centurion. They were the biggest of the big on the front lines. And they, so they led the crew into battle. You would look at a centurion and then you would look at me and you say, I'm going to fight Pastor Randy. I'm not going to fight the centurion, right? Uh, these are really, really big guys and chosen to be in their position because of it. And so this centurion comes to Jesus, and he's begging him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant. Now, this word for servant is probably a a young child, a young slave, a youth, perhaps. We think of Joseph when he was young and sold into slavery. Uh, He was valued, and, and he says, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He's in great pain. And now this centurion comes, Lord, come, my servant is lying paralyzed. Will you come heal him? And Jesus said, verse 7, I will come and heal him. Now there's some debate among scholars if this is in the form of a question. Not I will come, but will I come and heal him? In other words, should I come and heal him? Why? Why is that an issue for Jesus to go to the house of a Gentile centurion? It's the same issue that was at stake when Jesus touched the leper. Ceremonial unclean. Ceremonially unclean. If he goes into the house of this Gentile, he will be deemed unclean. So, some debate how should this be worded? Is it, I will come, or will I come and heal him? Is it type of a question? Is Jesus drawing out an answer? In any case, verse 8, get, we get the answer. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. It's the same word that comes up when John the Baptist says, I am not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. The same, same word, same construction. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So now this big, powerful, respected centurion soldier is now confessing his own unworthiness before Jesus. This Jewish man that they don't know quite what to make of him yet. He's coming here and he's confessing, I am not worthy for you to come into my house. And then he goes further. He says, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. This man has astonishing faith. As a soldier, he's recognizing something in Jesus. He sees authority in Jesus. He sees uncleanness in himself, and he says, look, as a man of authority, I know I can give an order way down the chain, and it's going to get done. I don't need to go ensure it myself. I know it will happen. And when I tell somebody to do something else, it's going to be done. It will be executed. And therefore, I know if you just say the word, you have authority. If you just, just say the word, I know he'll be healed. That's an amazing confession. First, because Israel rarely has had anything like this happen in its history. Most healings, you, you come. The prophet comes. He comes to the house. We think of Elijah and Elisha and all these healings they did. They, they come and they either lay hands on them or lay their bodies on them or, or pour something on them or touch them. There, there's, there's some sense of, of conferred authority. But this Roman says, 
Just say it. And I know at a distance, he has faith. I know it's going to happen. He's going to be healed. Verse 10, we get Jesus' response to this. It says, he marveled. He said to those who followed him, now Jesus is about to, he, he's about to actually make an inflammatory statement. He could have just said, wow, that's amazing faith, good job, but he's actually going to indict Israel now, uh, intentionally. He, he said to those who followed him, truly I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Ouch. With nobody in Israel, the, the chosen people of God, the people who have the promises and the covenants, with nobody have I found such faith as in this Roman centurion. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus says, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus is taking the opportunity to echo the very missionary heart of God. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob while the sons of the kingdom are cast out. He's taking the opportunity to, one, to remind them of the missionary heart of God. Isaiah chapter 25 is what he's drawing from here. He's, he's picturing the kingdom of heaven, that like a banquet. We see this in Revelation as well, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, he's picturing, Isaiah 25 pictures the kingdom of God as, as a banquet where, ta- where the nations will come to and will dine together. And there's many passages throughout the prophets that picture Jews and Gentiles coming together around the Messiah in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is taking the opportunity to highlight this great truth. One scholar said this. There's some important elements here that if we had time are actually really important in our nation right now as we're constantly having to deal and be reminded of this issue of race. This actually comes and has direct impact for us in Hawaii as well. Uh, If you were to think through how this centurion, this oppressive power, how they were viewing the Romans is now receiving mercy from Christ. There's a lot here for us that I don't have time to get into today, but but I do want to note, one scholar said this, those who claim to be Christians, the covenant people, can also be excluded from the kingdom if they lack either of these two elements. Those who deny people of certain races, classes, or creeds access to God's message and ministry in this life may find themselves excluded from his presence in the next. They go on to say, hell is not a doctrine used to frighten unbelievers. Hell is not a doctrine used to frighten unbelievers. It is a doctrine used to warn those who think themselves believers, close quote. It's not often a doctrine used to frighten unbelievers. It is often a doctrine used to warn those who think themselves believers from hard, callous hearts. And so Jesus warns, 
Many will come from east and west and recline at table while the sons of the kingdom are cast out in outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we see Jesus, true to his word, honoring the faith of this man, go, be it done as you have asked, as you have believed. And then we have our final third portrait here. Verse 14, the unvalued. Verse 14 to 17, the unvalued or undervalued. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Now we, we go again. Here's our third portrait. So we have the unclean, the leper. We have the, the unworthy, the outside the covenant, Gentile, Roman centurion. And now we have the undervalued. This is another person, another segment or class in Jewish society that was not valued properly or accordingly with the dignity that God gave them as image bearers, and that is women. Women. Now, we can't build a full theology of women from this little short block alone, but there is a full theology of womanhood in the scriptures, and perhaps one day we'll look at that all strung out together. But we see Jesus enters Peter's house. This is enough for us to know that Peter was married, because who's sick? His mother-in-law. So the Roman Catholics have an issue here with this, as they held to, and for many years, the, the doctrine of celibacy for priests, but again... I'm just sprinkling things for you for later, right? So his mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever. Same issue at play. If Jesus touches her, he is now also unclean. And verse 15 gets straight to the point, and he touched her, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases, from Isaiah 53, verse 4. Now here's the picture. Jesus comes into yet another person who is undervalued to women, and he shows great mercy. We find out later from Mark's gospel that this healing actually took place on the Sabbath day. This gives us a little bit of picture as to why, verse 16 notes, that evening they brought to him all who were oppressed because it was a common practice that you don't heal on the Sabbath day. Jesus is going to challenge that head on repeatedly. But you see the people still practicing it. That evening they're waiting for the formal end of the Sabbath and then they all start coming to Jesus for healing. And in this case, it says Jesus healed all of them. He cast out anybody who needed uh, demons exercised. He did that. He healed the sick. And Matthew ends with that fulfillment quote, which is so important for Matthew. And what I want to do now is I just want to wrap it up with some application. Many have commented either informally or, or even in, in here uh, in larger gatherings how you are all loving very much the book Gentle and Lowly. Uh, by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly. We distributed these in our small groups. We, we probably have some copies if you would still like to get a hold of one, uh, where Dane walks through the author. Um, I don't know why I said it like I know him, like he's my friend. Dane, you know, I don't know you, but uh, where, where the author, Dane Ortland, walks through and 
um, he's really displaying from the scriptures, trying to show the heart of Christ. If you could describe or let Christ speak for himself, what would he say? What is his very heart characterized? Gentle and lowly. And he laces this together with uh, insights from the Puritans, from others throughout church history that that all come together for a rich trove of encouragement. And I want to say, if there's if there's any passage in Matthew that exhibits so clearly, that portrays so beautifully the heart of Christ that we have seen thus far, it's in Matthew 8. You see his heart for the suffering. You see his heart for sinners. You see his miracles. They demonstrate his power. Yes, his authority to heal. That's important. I don't want to lose sight of that because this is all part of the kingdom of heaven being proclaimed in word and in deed. This is the inbreaking power of the kingdom now manifesting itself, reversing the effects of the fall as we sing in the Christmas carol, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. He rules the world. This is that inbreaking power. Yes, we see that. We're going to see that over and over in Matthew. But more than that, what we see in Matthew 8 is this demonstration of the very heart of Christ to heal and to cleanse, to meet the sufferer and the sinner and the outcast and bring them in. You see him do this. You hear it in that leper, and I hope you just heard it with that, that, that undercurrent of despair. Lord, if you will, and he kneels, if you will, you can make me clean. So that exhaustion of, of having all my other efforts spent and, and finding no healing, of, of longing to see my family, of being tired of being outside the camp, of, of isolation and loneliness and pain. It just, if, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Then you hear the very heart of Christ. I will be clean. I will. And maybe you're here today, maybe you're watching online and, and you're wondering the same thing. Maybe you have some past that you're ashamed of, that you don't like to talk about, that you've kind of shoved deep in a way in a closet, you locked the key in your brain and, and you threw it away and you, you don't want to think about it. And you wonder if, Lord, you can heal me, if you will, but you wonder, will he? Or maybe you have some history that's ongoing into the present that you don't want to talk about with anybody, including God. And, and you're kind of just hoping that by coming to church that you and him can just, can just ignore it and move forward and not deal with it. Or maybe right now you're engaged in actions that would render you morally unclean, unfit sinful, to stand in the presence of a holy God. And you wonder, will he make me clean? Will he bring me in? Or will I be banished outside the camp? Will I be thrown out, deemed unclean, untouchable, 
unacceptable. Friend, hear this passage if that's you. See the very heart of Christ for sinners if that's you. For the unclean, see him if you feel like you are untouchable. See him reach out and touch the unclean, to touch the untouchable. He'll bring you in. Hear his heart saying, I will be clean. And you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt, if you come to him today, he will make you clean. He'll speak a word. You say, but Pastor Randy, he's, he's not here. If, if I could see him, just know this. He is as surely alive in heaven, interceding on behalf of his people. And if you come, though you see him not, he will speak the word over you, clean, be healed, and it'll be done. And your sin will be washed away, and you will be made whiter than snow. And you'll be brought back in forever and ever. You don't need to see him to know it's done because he'll say the word in heaven and he'll bring you in. And as Dane Ortland illustrates so powerfully, your sins, your problems, they don't disqualify you from coming to Jesus. I hear it all the time as a pastor talking to people, oh, I can't step foot into church. I'm going to light that place on fire. It's going to burn as soon as I walk in there. I'll get roasted. I hear it all the time or something of that nature. Your sins don't disqualify you from coming to Jesus. They are the very reason that Christmas exists. They are the very reason that Jesus came to you because of your sin. You're not hiding it from him. He already knows it all. And I can assure you on the authority of the word of God, you won't exhaust his patience. You won't expend his mercy. You are unable to quantify his grace for sinners, and you certainly cannot cancel his love for you. If you come, if you ask him, he will make you whole. The Lord's heart for sinners truly is gentle and lowly. And I close with Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 5. This is where Matthew closes, and so I'll close with it as well. Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 5. God, use your word to speak powerfully more than I could. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And that healing is available today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a joy to hear your word and to see your heart displayed for the unclean, for the unworthy, and for the undervalued. Father, I know that this time of year, the holidays are hard for many. They're hard for many who have a history that is painful in this time of year. They're hard for many who have present challenges that are trying their soul and their faith in this time of year. And so, Lord, I ask that you would meet us, that you would meet us now through your word and by your spirit that we would see that healing is still available to all who come and seek you. 
And so, Father, may we come, may we taste and see that you are good, and would Christ be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.